Welcome back to the Vatican Briefing, National Catholic Reporters podcast covering Pope Francis, the Vatican, and the big decisions facing the global Catholic Church. I'm Joshua McElwee, the reporter's news editor. And hello, I'm Christopher White, the reporter's Vatican correspondent. We have a special episode for you this week as we prepare for the Christmas holiday. Later in the show, we'll be joined by Carrie Robinson, a longtime leader in the U.S. Church who is now serving as the president and CEO of Catholic Charities USA. Chris spoke with Carrie about the work of the some 170 Catholic Charities agencies across the U.S. and the extra efforts they are making now during this special season. But before we get to that interview, there is a lot to talk about this week. Chris, we're talking on Monday, December 18th, just really moments after the Vatican released a declaration officially allowing Catholic priests to offer blessings for couples in same-sex unions or for straight couples who have been divorced and remarried. Can you talk a bit about just what happened? Yeah, Josh, it's really nice when the Vatican coordinates their schedule for announcements and releases that align so well with our recording schedule. In short, this is a very big deal. I think, you know, what we received from the Vatican's doctrinal office today is a declaration saying that priests can bless same-sex couples, divorced and remarried couples, under certain conditions. Namely, uh, as long as these blessings do not send mixed messages about the Catholic Church's traditional understanding of sacramental marriage, and also with the caveat that these blessings do not take place within a liturgical celebration. For a 2,000-year-old institution, one of the most concrete and significant developments in terms of the, the pastoral practice of priests when it comes to gay couples. Yeah, it's quite interesting. So this document from the Dicaster for the Doctrine of the Faith makes clear that the Catholic Church is not changing its teaching on sacramental marriage. It continues to teach that marriage is a sacrament to be celebrated between one man and one woman. But yet there's this extraordinary openness to offering blessings, to kind of meeting people where they are in different unions, in different situations in their life. And this follows earlier statements from the Pope right before the Synod of Bishops in October when he was asked about this issue and basically said, you know, a blessing is a request from someone for God's help in their life. And the Pope did not think it was appropriate for a priest to withhold that blessing. But now we're seeing something much more official in terms of an official document from the powerful Vatican office tasked with safeguarding the Church's teaching. And it should have some pretty massive consequences on the ground in places across the world. Yeah, I mean, the document is explicit in naming it, saying that this is the development and how the church perceives blessings. There are sort of these ritualistic blessings, it says, you know, you get from a particular book, and this document says that's not what should happen here. They're not looking for any sort of scripted blessings to be developed, but it gives the permission for the priest to really use pastoral discretion there. And it says that, you know, blessings shouldn't be subject to, you know, exhaustive moral analysis in order for people to get them. It's also quite interesting. So this document comes kind of in the the scope of many such documents in the past six months or so that seem to have a more open tone from the Vatican in terms of same-sex unions or of gay persons and outreach to gay persons in the Catholic Church. We saw an earlier document from this dicastery making clear that persons who are trans should be allowed to be baptized if they request a baptism, should be allowed to serve as godparents. It's also after we've seen the Pope take a very open tone in the Synod of Bishops. It does seem like we're in a bit of a different era, especially with the Pope appointing this new head of the doctrinal dicastery. Maybe you can talk about that a bit, Chris. Yeah, you know, last summer in July, the Pope announced that Cardinal Victor Fernandez would be the new head of the Vatican's doctrinal office. Cardinal Fernandez, you know, is a fellow Argentine. Uh, He'd been a longtime personal theological advisor to the Pope. But by putting him into the head of the Vatican's doctrinal office, that very you know, powerful institution, the Pope effectively has his man in the job, in the seat, to really set a course for how theology could and should be done in the church. 
And I think what we've seen in this decision today and in many of these recent responses and documents that have been released on a number of sensitive pastoral questions is very much a change of tone. All these documents marked by much greater openness really emphasize that pastors should be caring about the concrete circumstances in which those who come to them face rather than these abstract ideas. I guess I should say that we will have coverage of this. You can see Chris's reporting at our website, ncronline.org, and I'm sure we'll have more coverage in coming days from theologians commenting on this new Vatican document. But in the meantime, maybe we can talk about more news. It's actually been a pretty busy few days at the Vatican. Over the weekend, Chris, you were covering on Saturday, December 16th, as Cardinal Angelo Bechu was convicted by a Vatican tribunal of financial embezzlement and sentenced to five and a half years in prison. Can you talk about that and the length of this trial and this whole process? Yeah, just an an extraordinary conclusion to what's been an ongoing saga for a number of years now. Cardinal Bechu, incredibly important figure throughout the Francis Pontificate, really. He, you know, served for a number of years as the Pope's chief of staff, the Sostituto. Then was made a cardinal in 2018 and oversaw the office responsible for making saints in the Catholic Church. But this trial was meant to be an effort to show that the Pope was serious about rooting out financial corruption inside the Vatican. And it's the first time in the Church's history that the Pope ruled that a cardinal could be judged by a jury of lay judges rather than the Pope himself. And rather complex, there's an indictment that's about 530-something-odd pages. Uh, This trial took place over, you know, two and a half years. There were 80-plus hearings. But it really centers around, you know, financial misdealings, particularly around property in London, a former Herod's warehouse that the Vatican had invested in 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 hopes to turn a profit on. In the end, through some shady dealings with various questionable individuals, (laughs) the Vatican ended up losing about $200 on the property. And the trial also explored other areas of financial misdeeds. Allegedly, Cardinal Bechu uh, had been involved in, including misappropriating funds that the Pope had set aside for the freeing of a religious sister who had been kidnapped in Mali, uh, as well as perhaps some shady dealings that the Cardinal had involving his own family members that had benefited from his high rank in the Vatican. It's a very complex case. It's the sort of things that you'd almost read about in a book of fiction or some sort of thriller movie. But this was the reality that the Vatican kind of aired out all its dirty laundry in public with this trial after two and a half years ended with the Cardinal's conviction and a sentence of five and a half years in prison. Yeah, we should say that Cardinal Bechu maintains his innocence. He says he's planning to appeal this verdict. He's been very forceful in saying that he was undertaking his duties as he saw best fit. And obviously, we've heard from him over two and a half years. I mean, I was in the trial room two and a half years ago when this started, and it's incredible that it's taken this long. It's a very complicated procedure. The Vatican uses, you know, 19th century Italian law essentially to continue its procedures, and it's taken a long time. And I presume now there will be a series of appeals, and it's not just Cardinal Bechu, but he had a number of co-defendants, I suppose, named also in the indictment. And so we could see declarations coming from many of them in coming days. Now, obviously, Chris, it's also been a busy week because Pope Francis celebrated his birthday on Sunday. He's 87 years old, and I know that you you wrote a column for ncronline.org, kind of looking at some of what it's like to have one of the oldest popes now in the church's history. Yeah, Pope Francis, 87 years old, now deep into his 10th year as pope. I think it's fair to say it's been a tough year for the pope physically. You know, not only has he struggled with some mobility issues, he's had two significant hospitalizations, one for bronchitis, the other a hernia operation. But we also see the pope moving quickly. You know, there are a number of things that have happened in this last year that have given us a sense that the pope is in a hurry, realizing that after a decade, you know, that the clock may be ticking for him 
as it is for all of us. But that is really brought into focus when one turns 87. He's the fourth oldest head of state in the world. This just raises a number of questions. It raises questions about, one, you know, the murkiness of the Vatican's own lack of protocol for how to deal with aging popes and the fact that, you know, what would happen under the nightmare scenario of if a pope ended up in an unconscious and in a vegetative state. Pope Francis has said that he's written his letter of resignation, should this happen, as have other popes before him, but we don't know how exactly that could be implemented. But it also raises the question, I mean, we're having this, you know, roiling debate in the United States over the likely contest between a septuagenarian and an octogenarian for, for president. You know, the papacy, just by definition, is always almost held by a, a much more senior leadership. So in a sense, the Catholic Church is well accustomed to this sort of reality, but it also just shows the real limitations, but also the wisdom that can be brought by the elderly and the real tensions there. Yeah, and you did a nice job kind of balancing the respect for the Pope and, you know, the importance of his office and the leadership he shows in the world, but also just physical limits, a person getting older and, you know, it happens to all of us and, and that there's things to be looked at. But obviously the Pope is still the Pope and he is continuing about his ministry. Also on Sunday, he had some powerful words to say at the weekly Angelus address about the ongoing Israel-Hamas war. He called for protection of civilians and non-combatants and particularly spoke about a declaration from the Patriarchate of Jerusalem that apparently two of its parishioners they thought had been targeted or killed by Israeli defense forces. And so we see the Pope continuing his work of ministry and of keeping his eye on those in need across the world. Before we wrap it up here, Chris, we're looking at Christmas. I know in many parts of the world, people are getting ready for their Christmas feasts. Those of us who are Vatican correspondents or former Vatican correspondents are also aware that this is the time of year where the Pope gives his yearly address to the Roman Curia, to all the offices that help him in his administration of the Vatican. And usually these addresses are quite interesting. I remember, I think, four or five years ago, the Pope listed the 10 illnesses he saw at the Vatican bureaucracy that he wanted fixed in the next year. Uh, maybe set the scene for our listeners about what you'll be looking for when this happens on Thursday. Yeah, we'll, we'll be very curious to see and hear, you know, just what the Pope's areas of emphasis are, you know. Is this a chance to, to lecture the Curia on, you know, what he sees them doing wrong or not well enough and to sort of give them coal for Christmas, as folks have said before? Or could this be a chance where the Pope really uses the speech to double down on his, his real emphasis on synodality? You know, we're coming after the October session of the Synod and ahead of next year's session. And this is, of course, the big sort of mechanism for reform that the Pope has used in recent years inside the church. And not everyone's on board, so we might see him, you know, emphasize that. It's always a fascinating speech that has many direct spoken things and some things left unspoken uh, as well. And so we'll try to decipher that uh, at NCR for all of our readers and get your popcorn ready for a big show on Thursday. With that notice, maybe this is a good place to take a break and you can follow along with us at ncronline.org. But after the music, we'll be back with Chris's interview with Carrie Robinson. We're joined on the Vatican Briefing today by Carrie Robinson, a renowned expert in Catholic leadership and philanthropy, who as of August of this year took over as the new president and CEO of Catholic Charities USA. Carrie is only the second layperson and second woman to guide the domestic humanitarian work of the Catholic Church in the United States. Previously, she worked as an executive partner of the Leadership Roundtable, the influential organization of laity, religious, and clergy working to promote best practices and accountability in church management, finances, and communications. Carrie is a much sought-after Catholic writer and speaker, and she's traveled the globe as a trailblazer for women's leadership in the church. 
Carrie, thank you so much for joining us today on the Vatican Briefing. It is such a pleasure to join you, Chris. It would be even better if we were in person in Rome, but we'll take this for now. You're always very busy, but you've had an especially busy few months. I think many of NCR's readers and our listeners at the Vatican Briefing know you from your influential work at the Leadership Roundtable. But at the end of the summer, you took on a new role as president and CEO of Catholic Charities USA. And so I just would love to hear about that journey and and what the first few months on the job has been like for you. It has been absolutely wonderful. Truly, I believe now that I have been here for three months that everything I have done in my entire life and all of the experiences I have had have led me to this particular moment and this particular role at this time in the churches and in our country's history. I love it. I have inherited the most phenomenal staff, dedicated people, merciful, so intelligent, so hardworking. My predecessor, Sister Donna Markham, was a wonderful leader, and she has entrusted me with this extraordinary mission. So I could not be happier. I think so many of us know Catholic Charities almost just reflexively. We see it in our parishes and so many agencies around the country. But can you just sort of give us a sense of how Catholic Charities is on the front line all around, you know, the country? We have 168 local Catholic Charities agencies throughout all 50 states and five U.S. territories. Daily, they are meeting the needs of suffering people, whether they are impoverished, whether they are recovering from a natural disaster, whether they are migrants, they are veterans. Virtually any problem or or social challenge that one can imagine is affecting the people that we serve. And I'm amazed not only at how much is done by our Catholic Charities staffs and volunteers across the country, but the merciful way and the loving, truly the loving way in which those needs are met. We're talking on the approach to Christmas in the the middle of Advent. And I think, you know, as we approach the holidays, many people will be thinking how they can best help those in need during the season. So I just thought, you know, it'd be great to hear from you how Catholic Charities approaches this time of year and what are some of those things on your priority list? Well, every Catholic Charities agency has its own unique and special way of celebrating the Christmas season and responding to their particular local populations. There are some really beautiful and heartwarming examples, though. One comes from Rapid City. They have a wonderful, successful program called Uplifting Parents that serves low-income single parents and helps them to grow professionally by providing mentoring and financial resources so that those parents can get a college education. And at Christmas time, the agency collects and distributes Christmas presents for all of the children of the single moms and single dads in the program. And they even go so far as arranging for a professional photographer to take family shots. 
So that is just so heartwarming. And then you may have noticed another great example from New York City. Last weekend, a number of devoted volunteers from the agency met up at an Old Navy in Manhattan. Thanks to some generous donors, the volunteers purchased warm winter clothing, coats, sweaters, and scarves for more than 150 families that are struggling financially in the New York City area. And Santa was there, and Cardinal Dolan was there. Every agency does something unique. Our own Catholic Charities USA here in the headquarters of Alexandria, Virginia, we had the opportunity as staff to bring wrapped gifts for migrant children that are being cared for and housed in Catholic Charities DC. And our stock room was just full to overflowing with wrapped presents for children ages one month to 16 years. Yeah, practical and concrete ways to actually tend and, and meet the needs of, of those that are, you know, and there are so many needs. I want to ask you, Carrie, you've been a, a long-time fierce advocate for best practices in the Catholic Church, for best practices when it comes to governance and, and leadership. And we're coming at a time, just two months ago, we had the first session of the Synod of Bishops here in Rome, where over 400 people from all over the world were here. And among the many issues they talked about was the, quote, urgent need to expand women's leadership in the church. You have one of the top jobs in the Catholic Church in the United States. So can we talk a bit about your journey to this point and what it's like for you to be a woman leading at a time in which the church is saying, yeah, we, we need more of this? First of all, I am so happy that the Global Synod has, from every continent, lifted up this as a, a matter of managerial and moral urgency. It is so gratifying to know that this is a shared and universal concern. I have advocated for the role of women in positions of meaningful leadership and at the tables of decision-making all of my life, particularly when it comes to the church and church leadership and decision-making. We are impoverished without the contribution of so many well-educated, theologically astute, pastorally sensitive women. And I do think that we are seeing important changes in this regard. I've often been asked in these first three months about my own role as the president and CEO of Catholic Charities USA, and I, I always always say it's not about me in particular. It really is about uh, ensuring that young women are given opportunities to bring their full complement of skills and abilities to serve the church when they discern a vocation of service to that church. And I look around the Catholic Charities Network and I see many examples of women and men working together in leadership, in decision making, all for the sake of the mission. It's really, really gratifying. You know, I, I think one of the things that was so evident at the Synod was just the, the sense of awareness that after so long and so many voices like that of your own, these concerns are getting recognized at, at the highest level of the church. 
one of the things that was an outcome of that synod, you know, was just talking about meeting the concrete needs of Catholics and non-Catholics and being a visible sign of life in the world. And so I, I would love to hear more about the concrete ways in which Catholic Charities is thinking about your top priorities in the year ahead. When you, when you look at the calendar and you look at the great needs facing the world today and particularly in the United States, what's at the top of your list? Well, at the top of my personal list, especially as a, a new leader, is to engage very synodally in deep listening. I am taking a page from the synodal playbook and I'm trying to encounter and accompany as many members of the multiple constituencies that comprise Catholic Charities. And I am intent on listening to the, to the stories and the realities of our staff, of our volunteers, of our supporters, of bishops, and of course, of the people we serve. What is uh, particularly striking to me is that Catholic Charities, because it is part and parcel of extending the love and mercy of God concretely to people who are in need of basic necessities like food and shelter and clothing, warmth, job training, safe shelter, that we are turning statistics into real live stories, human stories that can't help but pull at your heartstrings and remind you of how interconnected we are. So, of course, migration is a big concern, not just here in the United States, but across the globe. Pope Francis has highlighted this in his own leadership. We take that very seriously here in the United States, working closely with Border Patrol, welcoming the stranger and providing basic needs for them. I, I would say that I am especially looking forward to learning these stories so that I can be a spokesperson to multiple constituencies, politicians, church leaders, other partners in the, in the nonprofit sector, donors, and of course our diocesan directors. This is such a beautiful story to tell. You know that the people we serve are of any faith, all faiths, no faith. The only thing they have in common is they belong to the human family and they are in need and they know that they can find mercy and care and compassion at Catholic Charities. You know, just last weekend, we're recording this on December 14th, but at, here at the Vatican, there was uh, a dinner sponsored for the poor of Rome underneath the colonnade. Uh, Bernini's famous, iconic colonnade, you know, such a, an iconic, grand piece of art used as a setting to provide something beautiful and concrete, you know, a, a meal, a dinner for those in, in need. And I think, you know, as you've just talked about this time of year, sort of pushes these issues and those concerns to the forefront of our minds. I just want to ask you as we wind down here, you know, you've written so much about abundance and the need for Catholics to, and you've been a great advocate for Catholic philanthropy. Uh, you know, th as we think about the holidays and the, the need for responding concretely to those on the front line, what have you learned from all of your own personal encounters that you'd like to pass on and, and any wisdom you might have to share? 
What I have learned is that generosity is humankind's birthright and that we are all called to be generous and to be catalysts to inspire generosity in others. And there's no better season than the season of Advent to exercise that generosity. Wherever we are in the world, honestly, we can look around and we can see human need. Everyone needs mercy, for sure. And I, I like to invite my own children and my husband. I like to invite my colleagues here at Catholic Charities USA. I'd like to invite your listeners, Chris, to just think this Advent about who needs mercy right now and how can I be that generous source of hope and light for them. As we conclude here, Carrie, I just I want to give you a chance to say, you know, is there anything else that you want our listeners to know about the work of Catholic Charities, particularly in this season, or, you know, what might be needed most in terms of support and, and how they can support Catholic Charities and those on the front lines? Well, I would say if your listeners happen to be Catholic, immersing yourself in learning about what Catholic Charities does at the local and national level will make you incredibly proud to be Catholic. And if your listeners are not Catholic but are American living in the United States, seeing the work of Catholic Charities in action on behalf of those who are experiencing their worst days and their deepest struggles will make you incredibly proud to be American. Carrie Robinson, thank you so much for joining us in the Vatican Briefing and for all you're doing at Catholic Charities USA, and I look forward to welcoming you to Rome sometime soon, I hope. Merry Christmas, Chris. Merry Christmas, Carrie. We are so grateful that we had the chance to be joined today by Carrie Robinson. Chris, I was really struck by how Carrie responded to your question about how the Synod of Bishops considered the importance of women's leadership in the church. The way she said it was a matter of managerial urgency for the church to better include women and that we are impoverished by not doing so. I thought that was just so interesting, especially since Carrie has been part of a group of professional, well-respected women who have been calling for church leaders to do more for a long, long time. Yeah, I, I think, you know, for years, Carrie has been a prominent woman and a position of leadership in the Catholic Church. You know, she's been at the Vatican. She's written publicly about this, you know, lobbying for women to have a seat at the table. She's now at the head of the table for one of the Catholic Church's largest institutions in the United States. So I'll be interesting to see how that just has a larger effect. And if it does on, on the bishops' conference, I think back to October Synod of Bishops that we covered, and every day we saw bishops, cardinals seated next to lay women, religious sisters at these round tables during the discussions. The U.S. bishops, for example, have adopted the round tables, but it's still all men. So perhaps we might see a future with folks like Carrie sitting at those round tables with them for their meetings in the future. Who's to say? It's something we'll certainly be following. Yeah, and it was also nice to hear Carrie speak so movingly of the work of those 170-some Catholic Charities agencies and what they're doing now, especially in this season, to help people in need and to really put the focus on a variety of people who need our help, those who are experiencing homelessness, those who are migrants or families of migrants. And it was very moving to hear her speak about particular ministries that she's experienced in her few months already as the president and CEO of Catholic Charities USA. Well, I guess that seems like a good place to wrap it up for this week. Uh, thanks a lot for joining us today for the Vatican Briefing. You can find our show notes and all of our work at National Catholic Reporter at ncronline.org. And please, if you feel so inclined, leave us a review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or however you listen. It really helps. 
We should be back in your feeds in mid-January. In the meantime, we really hope that uh, all of our listeners and all of you out there have a great holiday season. And until next time, you've been briefed. Vatican Briefing is a production of National Catholic Reporter. John Grosso is your executive producer. Joshua McAlee and Christopher White are your producers and hosts. The editing was done by Angie Von Slaughter in conjunction with David Dalt of Sandberg Media. Today's music is provided by Blue Dot Sessions. This podcast and NCR's Future Media Initiative are made possible in part by the generosity of Bill and Jean Buchanan.